So let's get into the Word. Let's pray first. Father, I pray that you would just bless the reading and the teaching of the Word this morning. Uh, your Word is true, Lord. The Bible is true. Everything it says is true. It is your Word, Lord. It is infallible. You have revealed to us truth, Lord, and there is nothing like it. There is nothing like it in the world, the truth from your Word. There is nothing that can change my heart like your Word. There's nothing that can take me from fear to joy like your Word. There's nothing that can draw me closer and help me to know you more than your word and those who study it and those who minister to one another because of that. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Today, I'd like to talk about immiscible liquids. <laughs> you in the wrong class? Check your uh, schedule. Uh, I want to talk about immiscible liquids. Immiscible liquids. Adjective. An immiscible liquid cannot be mixed with another liquid without separating from it. We're talking immiscible liquids here, and immiscible liquids are things that just, they do not get along. They cannot join together. They cannot mix. It's a chemistry term, right? Why do I want to talk about chemistry? Well, because we talk about chemistry metaphorically, and we're going to be talking about it metaphorically today, but people talk about, oh, those two, they have chemistry, <laughs> which usually means they're both good looking and they like the fact that the other one's good looking. That's not really chemistry, but... People talk about chemistry, or friends have chemistry, or whatever, or you don't have chemistry with somebody. Uh, we also have chemistry with the world. Chemistry with the world, and the question is, what does our chemistry with the world look like? Immiscible liquids have a certain kind of chemistry. They do not mix with one another, kind of like oil and water. Um, watch this short video that I uh, grabbed from YouTube and stole here. Uh, you'll see what I'm talking about, very high quality video. I'll get out of your way. So the water goes in. Here comes the oil. As you can see, they don't mix. Gonna shake it up, try to mix it together. It's exciting, isn't it? Play by play. Is it gonna mix? Oh, they shook it up, it's gonna mix. Nope, it's not gonna mix. You can see they just start separating. They never did mix. They just kind of look like they did. Oil's gonna rise to the top, water on the bottom. That is an immiscible liquid. Now you know, you can turn that off. Now you know what it is, okay? Oil and water that don't mix. I wanted you to visualize it. Because, you know me, I'm all about visual aids. Uh, I'm not. When you mix oil and water, they separate. They want nothing to do with one another. You can shake them up, you can try, you can stir, you can do whatever, they just don't mix. They separate out into their parts. And I want you to think about sort of the metaphor of oil and water as we study the Word of God today. I want you to think about how we sometimes maybe try to mix ourselves with the world. And I would submit to you that in our metaphor... The world and a Christ follower are immiscible liquids. They don't mix. There's a term called syncretism. Syncretism up on the screen here, it is a process by which aspects of one religion are assimilated into or blended with another religion. This leads to fundamental changes in both religions. This is from Legionnaire Ligonier Ministries is where I got that uh, definition, but you can find it in any dictionary. Syncretism. So uh, one of the easiest examples of syncretism, if you go to India, maybe on a mission trip or whatever, or because the food is amazing, and you go over there and you meet people who are Hindu, oftentimes a Hindu will be a syncretist, meaning that a Christian missionary can go and they can preach Jesus and gospel to a Hindu, and a Hindu's like, sure. No problem. And they take Jesus and they just add Jesus to the many, many, many so-called gods that they already worship. Right? So you can have Krishna and you know, so on up on the wall, little pictures or little idols or whatever. And you just put a picture of Jesus up on the wall with that. And it's like, uh, he's just in the pantheon 
with all your so-called gods, that's how they do it. That's a classic form of syncretism where you're willing to take in a part of a religion, just try to mix it. Just try to mix it. And a Hindu uh, wouldn't necessarily see any problem with adding any number of so-called gods to the, to the sort of pantheon of so-called gods that they worship. That's syncretism. For the Christ follower, the problem's easy to recognize. We, there's one way, right? We know. Jesus, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many people come to the Father? No one. There's one way. Not Jesus and, not something other than Jesus, Jesus. That's it. Christians know that, they understand that. And so they tend to look at a Hindu and the way they would do syncretism and go, that's weird. I'll submit to you that maybe it's not as weird as you think. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one name, that's the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all there is. One way, right? We can't syncretize anything. There are not many gods. There's one God. Mark 12, 29. Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? So that pretty much rules out syncretism, right? Christians are like, mm, we, don't, we don't syncretize. We don't bring things in. We don't mix things in with our faith. There's no room for it. We can't decide to just go worship other so-called gods. And for most Christians, it's easy. Hopefully, very few of you have a bunch of like statues of idols in your home that you're like worshiping along with your daily Bible reading. Bible reading, then you go over to the Buddha and you do that thing and you go over to, You're not doing that, probably. I hope not. You're being quiet, so maybe you are. I don't know. <laughs> if, if that's what we're going to be convicted, man, I don't know. We're not going to get much further down here. But hopefully you're not, right? That's probably not what you're doing. You would say, yeah, Jesus is the only way and so on. The Israelites, of course, are the ones who definitely said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But they were tempted to syncretism. They had been led out of Egypt by the mighty power of God, right? Signs and wonders that are led to the promised land by the outstretched hand of God, fire, pillars of fire and pillars of cloud and the splitting of the Red Sea and water from the rock. I mean, all these things. They'd seen them with their own eyes. They knew who God was. He told them he is one, worship me only they were to go in and utterly destroy these nations in Canaan that the Lord had let their sin come up for 400 years. He was patient, and they were just vile people. They were under judgment. And God says, go in there and wipe them out. His judgment was on them because these people worshiped false gods and demons and did abominable things, the types of things that someone who loves the one true God shouldn't even think about. That's the kind of stuff they were doing, just vile things. And yet, God still had to sternly warn the people of Israel not to commit syncretism. They knew there's one way, there's one God. They saw the Red Sea split. How many of you have seen the Red Sea split? I don't mean the movie with Charlton Heston. <laughs> you haven't seen it, right? God has probably not done anything like the power that he showed, external power in the world that he showed with the Israelites. He was showing who he was for his own name, and they saw it. And yet he's still having to go to them and say this. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations, which you go to dispossess, this is Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. By the way, there are Bibles in front of you. If you want to take one of those home with you because you don't have a Bible, please take it home. It's our gift to you. You don't owe us anything for it. 
That is yours. We want you to have the word of God in your home. You can use those or you can look up here on, on the screen. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you will go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself. Take heed to yourself. Watch out. Be careful that you are not ensnared. Caught ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. Now, how is it even possible that he would have to worry about that? The God who has literally been there in power with this whole time, how is it possible that he has to worry about them going up and following dumb idols, right? Pieces of wood that people are praying to. Oh, make the crops come. The wood's like, because it's wood right? Why would he have to worry about that? Well, he is. He's telling them it's a concern. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. That's an interesting term. You're not going to syncretize that into what we have here. You're not going to syncretize with your worship of me. You're not going to bring in some of the ways that they do things too. Not going to happen. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Goes on, that's, that's chapter 12 and chapter 13. Scripture goes on to say, look, if some prophet comes around and starts saying, hey, we should follow after this other God, we should do this other thing, even if he prophesies something that's true or even if he does something that's like, ooh, don't do it, I'm testing you. Do not follow these other gods. In fact, what you're going to do is if that prophet comes and tries to turn you, kill him. God wasn't, in Israel, when God was king, he didn't mess around. The prophet comes, tries to lead you away, kill him. Right? Because you've got to put that evil away from you. It's even more. God goes on to warn the people. This is in chapter 13. Even if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, the wife who you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, secretly entices you. And he goes and talks about enticing you to serve these other so-called gods. What are you supposed to do? You have to kill them. Your hand first and then the rest of the people. You take your wife or your son or your husband or your daughter or whatever and you drag them in front of the people and you kill them. That's how serious God was about it. And you go, oh, that's so brutal. You don't understand how damaging syncretism is. You don't understand what it does to a person and to a people if you think that having those people get killed was a problem. He even says in the same chapter in 13 that if a city starts following the other way, you go to that city, you kill everyone, and you burn all their stuff. Like, well, that seems really harsh. Well, maybe syncretism is serious business. Maybe God takes it seriously because he is a loving God and a gentle God and a forgiving God. But this is one that he knew would lead the people away and destroy them and destroy their children and destroy the nation of Israel. And so he gave them very serious warnings. God does not mess around when it comes to syncretism. Oil and water do not mix. A Christ follower has nothing to do with syncretizing other ideas and philosophies and religions and nonsense into Christianity. And so we say, oh, that's easy. I won't pray to other gods. Why would I do that anyway? But why did the Lord have to warn them so sternly? It's not just about these other gods, you see. 
He knew the hearts of men and women were wicked. And he knew that they would want to be like the people around them. They knew, he knew, that when they went in, A, he knew they were not going to completely destroy the people like he told them to. First, he commanded to destroy them. Why? So this would not happen. They were already judged. They didn't destroy them all. Then they start hanging out with them. You know what they said? They're kind of cool. I want to be like them. That's why, that's why Israel ended up with a king in the first place. We want, a king. we want to be like the nations around us. They all have kings. We want to be cool. We don't want you to rule us, God. We reject you from ruling us because it's not like everybody else. We want a king. They did the same thing with their idols. What are they doing over there? That's cool. And of course, the way that they did their idol worship and so on involved an awful lot of fleshly sin. And they thought that was fun too. So it's not so much that they, oh, that's a really good looking statue. I'm going to go pray to that. Not so much. The idea was that they would be ensnared because they would, be, they would be wanting to be like the people they were around. And it was a concern. He knew that they could be drawn into the worship of these idols and demons and do these detestable works of the flesh, these, these sins. And he knew that even his chosen people could be drawn into that detestable nonsense. He knew it. And he was right. He always is. The people of Israel did turn. They did start worshiping idols. They did start worshiping Baals. They did all of that stuff. In fact, they even eventually were sacrificing their children in the fire to Molech. Literally sacrificing God's children, killing them in these disgusting ceremonies that they were doing. That's how far off they got. A thing that God says never even entered his mind That's where it went. God was clear that they were to be separate people. Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. The Hebrew word there is kadashi. Okay? It means sacred, holy, holy one, saint, set apart. What is he saying? You're going to be different. You're going to be set apart. You water their oil. You're not going to be like them. You're going to stay away from that. This is what God tells the people. They were to be separate from the world, from the nations around them. They were worship only God. Now, we've been in this series called Truth for Thinkers for a while. And one of the goals of this is to help Christ followers to recognize areas where they have bought into deception and lies that the world is telling them. Ways of thinking that are inconsistent with following Christ. We have to be aware. We have to be cautious. Take heed, lest you get ensnared. We have to be cautious against the lies and the deceptions of the world. We have to be vigilant when we interact with the world. I would suggest to you that Christians largely in this country, have not been careful. And as a result, there's been an awful lot of syncretizing with the world. We got to be water and let them be oil, and we got to stay away from them. We have the same call, the same call the Israelites had. We, Christ followers, have the same call to be separate. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. 
Okay, that's part of what we do every Sunday when we come in here. Girding up the loins, okay, so they wore, you've seen like the togas, the dresses and whatever. If it was time to run or fight or whatever, you pull that dress up, tie it up, baby, like you're wearing shorts and you're ready to go. And he's saying, do that with your mind. Get ready, get serious. Get, 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 be aware, be thinking, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. Not conforming yourselves. You're different. If you start going that way, it's going to conform you to your former lusts, the things that we've been saved out of, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So was this a call just to the Israelites? No. This is a call that's repeated in the New Testament. Be holy for I am holy. Now we have a slightly different word here that translated the Kadashi from uh, Hebrew to hagios. Hagios is the Greek word for holy. And, and hagios is also synonymous with the word saint. That's what... Christians are called, Christ followers are called saints in the scripture. And to be a saint is to be set apart. They mean the same thing. It's to be holy, it's to be set apart, it's to be devoted to God, it's to be perfect in the Lord. That's what it is to be, to be holy, to be hagios. Doesn't mean that you never make a mistake. It means that when you do, you confess and you repent and you get back to living like a saint. It's definitional that a saint is separate from the world, not syncretizing the nonsense from the world into our beliefs, but rejecting as deception that which is from the world. James 4, 4 through 5. Adulterers and adulteresses. This doesn't start nice. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world wants to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You cannot, you cannot be friends with the world and be good with God. Can't happen. It can't happen. James is clear. What does he call us? Adulterers, adulteresses, when we syncretize our faith with the deception of the world, we are adulterers and adulteresses. Why? Because God loves us jealously and passionately. More than you love your spouse, more than you love your children, more than you love your best friend, it does not compare how much God loves you and yearns for you. And every time that we go, we're going to take this thing from the world because we want to be like them, because we want to do that thing, because we want to do that thing. Because we want to be more palatable to the world. Every time you do that, it is like you are cheating on God. You are an adulterer. You're an adulteress when you do that to the one who saved you. When we syncretize, we cheat on God. The one who showed us so much love that he died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5a. While you were still a sinner, he died for you. And he's telling you that when you try to be a friend with the world, you are making him your enemy. When you syncretize, you say the world is more valuable, the world is more important. I want this now more than I want you, more than I love you, more than I serve you. 
friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, it says, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know that? That when you're a friend with the world, you are making yourself God's enemy? The God who loves you, the God who saved you? You're acting like you and he are enemies. That's what's happening. It's not an idle statement. I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L. I don't want you to get confused. It's not an idle statement. This is a warning that should make any Christ follower shaken to the core. It should shake you up. We would not be warned this seriously if it wasn't a serious issue and if it wasn't a concern that we could fall into. You've got to be vigilant to not have this happen. You're not going to just walk through and be separate from the world. You're going to have to do the work to be separate. We don't want to be enemies of God. We have to understand then what has happened to us as Christ followers. When you were an unbeliever, some of you still are, who are listening to this today, you were, or are, if you still are, oil in our metaphor. There was no water in you at all. You're lost. An unbeliever is lost. An unbeliever, by definition, is worldly, in the world, away from God, not holy, not set apart, completely worldly. An unbeliever can't even understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. If you are not a Christ follower, you don't even get it. That's how oil you are. You're completely in the world. Now, God can draw you to himself, and the Spirit can empower you. The Father can draw you. You can have forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ, so you can be saved. Then, when that happens, for those of you who that's happened to, in our metaphor, you're all water now. You went from all oil to all water. Completely separate things. Not mixing things. Not half and half. You went from one to the other. No mixture. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What you were before is gone. Gone. The word for passed away here, the Greek word, Perikomahi, and you don't need to remember that. Strong's definition says it's perish. It's one of the definitions it gives her. Perish, passed away, perished, dead. It's dead. Your old life is dead. It's not you anymore. It's over. You now have new life. You're water now, and you don't mix with oil any longer. You can try mixing the world back in, but all you do is make a mess. The world can't take you, can't accept you, because you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to God. But when you try to mix the oil of the world in, you actually can't be right with God either because you refuse to be holy. You refuse to be set apart. So now you're hindering your relationship with God by mixing with the world. And of course, the world's never going to accept you because you're God's. This is a problem. Praise God for his forgiveness that he washes our sins away. 1 John 1, 9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me suggest to you that you have likely syncretized with the world. You have likely brought things in that do not belong in your life. You have likely started to believe lies. You have likely started to believe in philosophies 
You have likely even mixed into your Christian practice things that are false. Some of us are walking around trying to mix ourselves, us as water with the world as oil. It does not work. Now, we do this in many ways, to be fair. The most obvious is when we look at our lives and they resemble the lives of our lost and unbelieving neighbors. And I want you to think really hard about this. When we look like our neighbors, we are being friends with the world. If you watch all the same shows and movies, listen to all the same music, wear all the same clothes, talk the same way, spend money the same way, your sex life looks like theirs, you lie to your boss and to your spouse just like they do, you're greedy for money and think about it all the time, all of that's like them. If that's what your life looks like, you're syncretizing. You're syncretizing. If that's your life, you love the world and God is your enemy. Doesn't mean you're not saved. You can be forgiven, but you're not right with God. You're not following Christ if your life looks just like your neighbor. And the person I would ask isn't yourself. I'd ask your neighbor. You may not see it. I'd ask the people in your life, did you know I was a Christian? And what did that, what did that mean to you that I was a Christian? Can you tell? If I hadn't told you, would you be able to tell? Because if not... You have to wonder whether you're really water to their oil. Acts 19, 17 through 20. Mm, hang on. Did I not get that one in there? I guess I didn't. It says, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, for fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. According to the Enduring Word, Bi Enduring word Bible Commentary, the value of 50,000 pieces of silver today has been estimated anywhere between a million and five million dollars. So this is what happens. They're in Ephesus. The power of the Lord's being shown. These people come to the Lord. They come confessing their sin. And they come, a bunch of them had been practicing magic. It was a part of the, the culture that people had gotten into where that was, you know, think about like idols and other gods. They're practicing magic. So they have all these books, very expensive books, and they bring them and they burn them. Why do they burn them? Because they went from water, I'm sorry, from oil in our metaphor, to water. That stuff no longer had anything to do with them. They, brought, they wanted it out. They wanted it gone. Just like God said, if they start worshiping another God, burn them. Kill them and burn them. They did the same thing with their stuff. They brought it out and physically burned it. Now, they could have sold it for a million to $5 million. They didn't want to sell it. They didn't want to sell it. They wanted to be separate. They wanted to show that they were separate. This is a New Testament story of people actually becoming Christ followers and physically showing that they're separate from the world. Are we physically showing that we're separate from the world? Can they see it? And people came to Christ then, they came confessing their sins, burning their books, their, their nonsense, all that stuff they were involved with. That's the call of Christ follower, to be separate from the world. You need to understand that we're facing a great apostasy. This is the definition of apostasy according to Merriam-Webster. An act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. Abandonment of a previous loyal, loyalty, defection. It's 
disloyalty. It's leaving the one you were loyal to. Normally, it's in a religious context. It's when people deconvert, when people leave the faith. And we are facing an apostasy right now in the world. The previously so-called faithful are defecting. They're walking away. We have a bunch of well-known former Christians who have or are currently deconstructing their faith. That is a postmodern or metamodern type term for defecting from God to the world. That's what deconstructing your faith means. It means I'm not loyal anymore. I'm done. I'm defecting. That's what it means. Now, whether it's bad theology that leads people away or sin, worldliness, the deceitfulness of riches, whatever it is, it leads them away. There's all kinds of bad theology. There's progressive Christianity out there. It's not a political term. You can go back and watch other sermons about that. But this idea that the Bible is only true or we say it's true, and basically the Bible looks, at, at the end of the day, it looks like whatever the world says. Whatever the world says is right, all of a sudden the Bible's cool with. All the places where the Bible says it's not cool, they just go, well, they didn't really understand. <laughs> if, you really, if you understand the real Jesus... It's vile. But this is what happens when they start trying to mix the world. When you try to make this look like the world, the scripture look like the world, it falls to dust in your hands. It cannot mix with the world. All you do is destroy it. But people try to do it. Same thing with all kinds of bad theologies out there. That's why we teach what's true. Health and wealth Christianity, political Christianity, there's a political Christianity on both sides of the aisle. Did you know that? You have a Republican Christianity. You have a Democrat Christianity. I can tell you all about them, but I'm not going to because they're nonsense. Because there's nothing that comes before Christianity. It's just Christianity. There's all kinds of versions of self-help Christianity that are primarily about empowering you and you're going to have a breakthrough. The breakthrough is Jesus, guys. Your whole life is a breakthrough if you're in Christ. That has nothing to do with getting rich or healthy or getting that new job. Those are all great things if you get them. But focusing on those, that's saying, I care about getting the things of the world. I'm a friend with the world. They end up at enmity with God. They're trying to mix oil and water people end up just serving themselves and becoming adulterers and adulteresses against God. And they make him their enemy. They make themselves his enemy. I don't want that for you, saints. I don't want that. I want you to see it coming so you can attack it and avoid it. You gotta be, you need to be sold out to Jesus. You need to be separate. It needs to look separate. Because those who are lost and broken are drawn to Jesus because of you. God uses you to draw them to Jesus. And you know why they're drawn? Because you're separate. Because you're different. That's why they're drawn to you. Why would they be drawn to Jesus if you've mixed so much oil in your life that people can't see the water anymore and you look just like them? If you look just like the lost person, why would they be drawn to your Savior? Clearly, you're not letting them do any more for you than they're doing on their own. That's what happens when you mix the world up. That's what happened to the Israelites. It just became like all the nations around them and worse. 
Do you think that we're beyond that? We're not. We're not. If you look and live just like a lost person, what would draw them to your Jesus? You have to root out the worldliness in your life. You have syncretized, most likely, some patterns of thinking, behaviors, whatever it is, into your life. You are not going to draw an unbeliever to Christ by acting more like them. I've been there. I've been in that thing like, well, if I just, you know, act more like them and maybe, you know... Um, talk kind of like they talk and whatever, then they'll, th- then they'll understand the Christians are, are cool too. Uh, no, that's not what they want to understand. They want to know that you're different. They want to know that you're separate. I've got a good friend who came to the Lord after years of just wild living. And one of the things that drew him was he started coming to this life group, small group they called it over there, and nobody acted like him. They didn't say the F word every other word. None of them drank, got drunk. None of that kind of stuff. And his whole life was partying, drinking, smoking weed, you know, being sexually deviant, every other word, an F-bomb, the whole thing. And he just, he was, he didn't think that there were people who didn't live like that. And when he saw these people who didn't live like that and were joyful and had fun, it made him have to face some things. Eventually the Lord got a hold of him. He came to Christ as been a strong believer, completely turned his life around, transformed by the power of Christ, been living in Christ for a long time now. But he didn't come because he found a bunch of people who were just like him and added Jesus to it. He changed because they were water to his oil. That's what the Lord used. It wasn't that they could get along with him and he didn't, that's not what he was looking for. You think he was happy in that lifestyle? He wasn't. He was on his way to death. You're the one who represents life, Christian. You're not going to draw them to life by looking like death. It's not going to happen. You know, the Father draws, He draws them to life through a vibrant, vigilant church that is sold out to Jesus, that is holy and separate from the world and death. Not a syncretized church. Not a church that's let all kinds of things creep in and hasn't really paid much attention to what they do or what they think and thinks that we're good because we come on a Sunday morning, but our week looks like everybody else. If we're going to be faithful, we can't be syncretized. You belong to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christ follower, you belong to Jesus Christ. You need to let the world know that the stamp of Christ is on you. You know, Jesus was a revolutionary. Glenn was talking to me, but Glenn Cook was talking to me about that this week. He's shaken up the world because he spoke the truth when others preferred the lies and deception of the world and people didn't like him because he did that. The Pharisees, they would come and they'd test him. Bad idea because he's God. So smart. Read the gospels, you're just like, dang. So smart. I mean, he's God, so I get that he's smart, but dang, he's really smart. In Luke 20, we see the Pharisees coming to test Jesus. It says, so they watched him. It's first starting at verse 20 through verse 26. So they watched him and sent spies. Jesus knows who you are. You can't spy on him, but whatever. Sent spies who pretended to be righteous. That's what, that's what their spies were. People pretending to be righteous. Oil putting on a water overcoat, 
right? Pretended to be righteous. That's what their spies were. That they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. As if any power and authority could be over Jesus. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, why are they asking? Because if he says no, then they can say, hey, he's trying to revolt against Rome and have the Romans arrest him. And if he says yes, then they think that he'll alienate all of the Jewish people who hate paying taxes to Caesar. But, it says, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. Now, I happen to have in my pocket, if I can find it, a denarius. That's what it looks like. Actually, you know what? Let's do this. I have fun. All right. Everybody look up at me so I don't hit you in the head. I'm going to throw a couple over there. Pass them around. Throw a couple right there. Maybe a couple over here. A couple over here. All right. You guys will figure it out. Pass them around. Look at them so you can see what he did. This is what he said. Hand me this. This is what it looked like. Okay? This is what he got. These are fake. Don't think you're going to sell these for any money. They are fake as can be. Like I would hand you guys real money. If you wouldn't mind when they get to the last person, if you'll drop them in the offering box with your fat checks. Um, no, you don't have to do the fat check, but I would like these back. But look at it as you pass it around. It's important. I want you to see it. I want you to touch it because of this. This is what he says. They, they said Caesar's inscription. He says, he's, and then he's, he said to them, and he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Now, I want you to think about this. There's an implication in what he says here. You have this stamp on your coin. It says Caesar. It's got his face. Usually it's got some idol or something on the back. This was Rome. This is the way they did things. We still do it, right? We still put people's faces on the coins. Of course, this was a little different because they, would also, they also had a cult of worship of the emperor. So they were kind of saying, hey, this, this is God. But he said, hey, I'm looking at this thing and it's got Caesar on it. Caesar is stamped on it, inscribed on it. So it's his. So this belongs to him. It's got his image on it. It's got his image on it. So render to him. Give it to him because it's his. But give to God the things that are God's. Now, what does it say in Genesis? Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Who, whose image do you bear? You bear the image of God. You are stamped, if you're a Christ follower, with Jesus Christ. That means you're his. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that goes to Caesar. 
But then he looks at you and he says, but my stamp is on you. You were made in my image and likeness. And so you render to God the things that are God's. What's God's in this context? You. This goes 100% to Caesar. It's his. We don't care. You go 100% to God. And the two don't mix. That's who you've been made to be. You have not been made. You have not been made to be wishy-washy, to syncretize the world, to believe in their nonsense, to get sideways every time you see a documentary or a YouTube video that questions the faith. Let me just tell you, I've seen tons of them. They're nonsense. Okay? You were made to stand strong in the Lord because you bear his image. And you will render to him the things that are his and the things that are his are you. Some, for some of you, that means taking that next step. Maybe you got to take out some stuff and burn it because you've secretized with the world. Maybe you just need to draw closer to him. Whatever the case is, if you're a Christ follower, you need to be vigilant to be separate. For some of you, you're still oil. You're still in the world. And the, what, the step you need to take is to realize you also are made in the image and likeness of God. And he is calling you to himself. When he says, render to God the things that are God's, he's talking about you surrendering yourself to him. Giving yourself to him. Because in giving yourself to him, we sang about freedom. Freedom reigns in this place. That freedom only comes when surrendered to God because he's the one who made you and created you and knows what's best for you and has a plan for you. So if you're not a Christ follower, it's time to move. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You're looking at those denarii with Caesar's inscription, I'm looking at you with God's inscription. And I'm saying, if he's begun it, he's gonna complete it. That means you need to make sure that you are always surrendered to him. You need to be checking yourself. Every time you watch a movie or a show, ask yourself, is this changing the way that I think? Is this infecting me with philosophies of the world? Am I becoming more like the world now that I'm thinking more like this? Am I putting more of that into my mind than I'm studying the word and being around Christ followers? Look at your bank account. Does it look worldly or godly? Don't answer <laughs> out loud. That was a lot of nervous laughter. Look at your sex life. Look at, look at your truthfulness. Are you a liar? You lie to people to get out of trouble when it's convenient? Are you angry? You, do you act like the world? Because that's all syncretism too. You're just following the same idols that they follow. At the end is themselves. Are you giving yourself to God or not? You bear his image and inscription. God's child. Hagios, saint. You gonna live like that? Like I say, if you're an unbeliever, it's time to come to the Lord. If you're a believer, all of us, all of us need to stop syncretizing. We can't put up the picture of Jesus 
next to the picture of money and sex and drugs and rock and roll or whatever it is. You can't do that. It's just him. Let's pray.